Some time ago in a congregation in the Lord's body in Phoenix, Arizona, there was a preacher who got caught with child pornography. Come to find out he had been addicted to this for years, and his wife knew about it. They were both wrong, because they cared about either their lust or their fear of themselves more than they did the kingdom of Christ. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We come to a point in Paul's letter here after he has sent it off to Rome, the capital of the world, the greatest expository in the gospel that we have account of from the greatest apostle. Between two bookends, Romans 1 and 5, Romans 16 and 26, the whole purpose of the letter, to bring us to obedience of faith. And after explaining the grace, mercy, and love of God, we come to chapter 12, which is what we call the hortatory. That means the so what? What does it mean to you? So what? Now that we know about the grace of Christ, now we know about the love and the mercy that was shed on the cross, according to Romans chapter 5. So what? What does it mean for the Christian? Holy, acceptable, be not fashioned according to this world. Knowing the grace of God on the form of the cross should drive us into the situation where we're living for Christ. We should be different. We should be separated. We should be holy. We are a special people. Peter will use the word, you are an elect race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation of people for God's own possession to show forth the excellencies of him that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2 and 9. He is copying the language of Exodus 19 and 6. Can you imagine the chosen people of Israel? He blessed them, brought them along, gave them a kingdom. You are that elect race. We're embarrassed by it. We walk around and we start to pick up this denominational bumper sticker that says, oh, you know, well, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I just happen to have grace. I happen to be forgiven. People, that's not true. Nowhere is it taught that way in the Bible. Titus 2 and 11 and 12 said, for the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Oh, I'm no better than anybody else. You're not. You should be. You see what's going on out there? You're not a better father. You're not a better mother. You're not a better child. You're not a better parent. You're not a better worker. You're not a better supervisor. You're not a better worker because we're Christians. We don't have to apologize for that. Obviously, our soul is not...
You know, you've heard the, the saying, all politics are local. Your world is local. That's what he's talking about, is the people that you work with, the, the ones that you go to school with, the ones that we, we communicate with, the ones that we live among. That's who we're supposed to be separated from. Come ye out from among them. Now touch no unclean thing. Hmm. See no unclean thing, fellas? See no unclean thing? Just a click away, isn't it? Just a click away. If you're erasing the history off your computer, you're wrong. If your parents aren't checking the history, you're wrong. They're not picking it up out there in some That's what's See no unclean thing. Hear no unclean thing. I know somebody's got a playlist. On the, it's a Christian couple's got a playlist, and they, they've got this rap music on there. And it's got this violent, raunchy, debaucherous type language. The kind of stuff that, oh, they kind of giggle about you to hear it. But that's the music they like. Really? Is that what we've come to? We've just dived into this culture. We baptize ourselves just like everybody else and, and immersed ourselves in this pop culture. And we giggle about it. That's where we are. We can justify that. Like that diet of that music going into their heads isn't going to do anything. Think no unclean thing. I know a Christian woman who read Fifty Shades of Debauchery last summer and probably didn't open up her Bible to read a chapter out of the Bible. You know some cellar in some alley somewhere, give somebody a secret handshake, go behind the curtain. And get and now they say, well, it was written by a woman, you know. That's sold over here by the Barnes and Noble. I don't care. You know what it is, and I know what it is. We are to be wholly separate. We are to be sanctified. How long are we going to justify behavior like that? Some among us have been named with language that you hear in the workplace. Oh, he kind of got a little hard tongue. Let it not be named among us. It's not good. We can't make excuses for it. We are to be separate. You're the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. Matthew 5 and 13. This is it. We are it. This is it. There is no one else. Salt of the earth. We listened to Dr. Edwards down in Florida, just a small group of us. We were privileged to hear him expound on this passage, and he reminded us, you know, salt is not just a flavor. Today, we think it's a flavor. For thousands of years, there were wars fought over salt. Why? Because it was preservative. It had sustenance. It, it meant that you could sustain yourself as a family or a country or a village. If you didn't have it, the meat went bad. It decayed. It got rancid. There's this putrefaction. I know, I worked in the alleys of Phoenix in 115 degree heat, out by those dumpsters behind the supermarket. You ever smell those? That stuff will grab your clothes and stay with you. That's ugly. You take the salt, you rub it into a steak, into the fresh meat. It keeps the putrefaction from happening. But instead, we what? We just kind of go along to get along. We're just getting a little bit more and more comfortable. The other day, my girls and I were watching one of our movies, a Walt Disney movie. Now you see him, now you don't. And the girls asked me, he says, when do you think this was, when do you think this was shot, Dad? And I looked and I, I saw the, the thickening lapels and I saw the little bit shaggy hair, but I, oh, I saw a miniskirt in the background. And I said, oh, that's, that's late 60s, early 70s. 
I got to thinking about when I saw him come in the church building. Girls wearing miniskirts. Right there in the congregation. And I remember one day when one of them was just kind of pulling down on it, trying to cover herself up as she sat down and stood up and kept pulling down on it. And I remember my mother was so disgusted. And as we're walking out, she says, well, why did she wear it if it bothered her so much? And it took me years to figure that out. What the peer pressure is like to children and adults alike. A while back, Dr. Stafford out at Maxwell Air Force Base is giving a speech, and he's giving it on the adult learning model and how we go along and develop our minds to make decisions and judgments and where we get our values from. He's going through these stages, and he comes to a stage called socialization. That's about the time I woke up and sat up and thought, okay, I've got to watch this. And on the slide is socialization. It is an immature stage that human beings go through that is characterized by the person adopting the values and the actions of the group to which they belong. Now, here's the sad part. 46% of all adults never leave the socialization stage. And I would say, I think it's double that. If you look to where we were 20, 30 years ago to what's happening right now and who's visiting the White House going on right now, And what's happening in the military? We have come so far, and yet we are starting to mime that. We are starting to sashay left when it gets too hot to the right. We sashay to the right when it gets hot to there to the left. We change our speech pattern. You ever find yourself at the workplace, you start to say something like, well, Lord willing, I'll see you. But then you catch yourself, and you're like, well, wait a minute. Can I say that? When are Christians going to call it enough? Maybe we ought to do this. Maybe we ought to just get along to, maybe we ought to gather around and try to get a lead on this. We're 20 years behind Europe. So if you look out over the last 150 years, 20 years later, what Europe adopts and what they do, there we are in America. They have topless beaches. And when they come here and they go down to Miami, they don't change. So let's make up a justification and excuse right now the way we can send our females to the beach that way. Oh, you say it's not going to happen? You mean there's something that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years to say that somehow we're going to not do that? We're going to stop it? We're going to stop and draw a line in the sand and go, no more, no more, we've had enough. I don't know, people. I don't know. Galatians 6 and 14. Far be it from me to glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. What world is Paul talking about? It's that local world. It's the world in which we live that we are supposed to be separate and apart from. Not imbibing in. Not getting along with. Not doing and saying what we have to to be comfortable. That's the world. In 1944, the United States reached out to a man named Raoul Wallenberg because we had a crisis in Hungary. You see, we had a little problem there. The Nazis and the Aerocross, which were the Hungarian fascists, were taking the Jews and exterminating them by the thousands. So we went to Sweden. Sweden was a neutral country. And a man, 32-year-old man named Raoul Wallenberg, was 
was due to inherit one of the largest financial empires of that time. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose by doing anything with the war. He could have sat back, wrote it out, he would have been fine. What did we ask him to do? Can you, as a Swedish citizen, go into Hungary and stop the massacres? With what? Well, we're not going to give you anything. What kind of authority? Well, there's no government that's going to back you. What kind of official documents are you going to... We're not going to give you anything. There's a deal for you. Raoul went. I don't know why. He chose. He went in. He went into Hungary. He didn't even know where to start. He studied his enemy and realized the Nazis and the fascists, they only respected one thing. That was officials and official documents and the pomp and circumstances of authority. And so he started producing passports and, and these official documents by the thousands, just producing them, uh, counterfeiting them. But he still didn't know what to do, and he would look out, and he finally tracked them down, and he would watch the rounding up of the Jews as they would put them on the cattle cars. They'd put them on in Budapest in the train of cattle. Then would go all the way four days' journey without food and water, just honey bucks on the train, till they got to Auschwitz, and there they would take care of their little problem and their experiment. They would hose out the cars with water, and they would send them back for more. And so he got so desperate, when he watched him being rounded up, he just bust through the lines, knocked the guns up, started flashing around documents, made himself out to be some official from Sweden, and started slipping passports to the Jews. And then asked everybody that has a passport, you get off this train, you got immunity from Sweden. And it worked. And so he did it again and again. And pretty soon the word got around that Wallenberg was doing these things and they still were wondering, well, where is he from? What's he doing? Who, who really gave him this authority? But they stepped back and they let him do it. He began to fly the Swedish flag over safe houses and he set up numbers of them. He had 20 houses at one time and 300 Jews stacked away in these houses. He didn't know how to feed them. He didn't know the logistics, didn't know how to get them out of there. And finally, he goes up and uh, he leaves and he goes on another trip and some young Nazis come by and they kind of realize what's happening and they start rounding up all the the women out of one of these houses. And a woman looks at her 13-year-old son and she knows this is the last time she's going to see him. She knows she will never see him again and they weep on each other and they hug each other and he knows he'll never see his mother again. He can't believe he's been born into a world where he can watch such atrocities and go through this. Less than a half hour later, she comes back through the door. She's got tears of joy in her eyes. She runs up to him, she hugs him, and she starts sobbing in his ear, and she says, Wallenberg, Wallenberg. Where there was no hope, there was hope. Where they had no vision of life, now he was given in this some kind of vision to be able to congregate together, try to strengthen themselves, to try to hang on a few more days out of the concentration camps and out of the communities, because he might come along. Towards the end of the war, the Nazis got so desperate, they started death marching. And they would march these Jews off 125 miles to the Russian front. Because as the Soviets began to walk through and come and take Hungary, the last ditch effort was to use the Jews as cannon fodder. So if they lived, which was rare, through the march and they got to the front, they would die there. Wallenberg gets desperate again and he drives up with these trucks and the Red Cross symbols on the side. And he's hired some people. And he jumps out and he begins to ask him, where's your passport? I know you have a passport. I know I've handed this group out some passports. And as the Nazis were in confusion, he would start handing them passports and they would start pulling them out of their pockets, not knowing what was happening. He'd say, you need to get in the trucks. These people are Swedish citizens. And he would grab them. But he only gave them to the young. 
He only gave them to the young, very few. And as he got back in the trucks and he started to leave, he realized there were these people there and they would have tears in their eyes and they would reach out to try to touch him because now their hope was gone. You see, they hoped for Wallenberg and there he was there and now he's going to be gone. They will never see him again. Their hope was over and they would reach out to touch him and he would reach out to touch them. And he'd grab a hold of him and he'd say, I'm sorry. I can only save a few, but I'm trying to save your nation. When the Soviets run through Hungary, Wallenberg disappears. He drops off the face of the earth. We never hear from him again. Nobody knows what happened to him. We suspected the Soviets picked him up, but they denied it, just like the rape in Berlin. They deny the whole thing. And then in 1981, Ronald Reagan stands up and he says, you know what, Raoul Wallenberg is an honorary citizen of the United States. There's only two. The other one is Winston Churchill. In 1989, when the wall came down, a Soviet contingency went to Sweden, went to Wallenberg's estate, talked to all the descendants of the Wallenberg family, handed over secret documents from LaBianca, and said, yes, we had him. We were afraid of him. We put him in solitary confinement, we tortured him, and we let him rot there, and he died. What drives a person like Wallenberg? to leave the deceitfulness of riches and other things of this world to answer to a higher call when we ourselves seem to squander in an American comfortable culture. What drives and commits a Wallenberg not to love the world or the things that are in the world? If any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2 and 15. Could you imagine American Christians lining up around Demas when it comes to the second coming? Is that where we want to be? We want to be lined up in the judgment seat to Demas. I mean, Demas is right there with the chief apostle. Demas is there at an event in history where everything in history pointed to this one event. The event occurs. There's 12 people gathered around. Jesus chooses them, chooses Paul like an untimely birth. Paul goes on to charge and lead the way to change the world, turn the world upside down. Demas is his right-hand man. He's working with him. He's being mentored by Demas or by Paul. And there Demas is to be able to help him, to support him. He is part of the earth-changing movement that puts us in another galaxy. And Demas does what? Paul says, he forsook me, having loved this present world, 2 Timothy 4 and 10. I don't want to even be close to Demas. Not even close. What is God's attitude? What has God's attitude been towards the culture that his people are surrounded with? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, when Moses is about to release the people and put them across into the promised land, he says, and when Jehovah thy God shall deliver them up before you, and you shall smite them, then you shall utterly destroy them, and you shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor make marriages with them. You won't give your daughters to them. You won't take their daughters for your son. You don't mix with the culture around you. He begs them again and again. He says, if you let them remain, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, 
Then shall they that you let remain of them be as pricks in your eyes, thorns in your sides, and they will vex you in the land wherein you dwell, Numbers 33 and 55. God's people have always been called out to be separate. Walk not in the customs of the nations which I cast out before you. For they have done all these things. Therefore, I abhorred them. I abhorred them. Leviticus 20 and 23. Be unto me holy, for I, Jehovah, am holy, and I have set you apart, that you should be mine. Verse 26. Jesus is praying to God there, and he is praying about his disciples. He said, I've given them thy word, and the world hateth them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of this world, John, 15, or John 17 and 14. When he's talking to his disciples and he says, if, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but you are not of this world, therefore the world hateth you. John 15 and 19. I think Doug said it on Sunday night. If we don't feel the animosity, if we don't feel the hatred, it's not our society that's getting along with us. Maybe we're not living right. Maybe we haven't determined to separate ourselves and say the things and do the things. Even those people that, think, that you think respect you and get along with you in some kind of religious kinship, you sit down and study with them, you will start to feel animosity. When there was a denominational group that was having a Bible study out at the base, Kelly sat down and joined that group because there was a young lady there that didn't belong to any church group. And she says, well, I'm not going to let them teach falsehood. So when she sat down and began to study in that group, with all her friends and all her walking buddies and the chaplain's uh, wife, when she spoke up and began to point out the truth, that group disintegrated. It exploded. It broke up. They, didn't, they couldn't hardly walk together anymore. It would just split up. You would, she would have never known that had she just went up there and gave him a good old hug every day. But you try to teach the truth, stand up for the truth, speak the name of Jesus. We're going to feel it. We absolutely will feel it. Come ye out from among them and be ye separate. Touch no unclean thing. God says, I will receive you. Be not fashioned according to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. We need to spend more times in our Bibles, more times on our knees. More time holding each other accountable and quit making excuses and justifications to try to get along with the things in this life because this nation has already turned a corner. It has already gone by. Those times are past. It is time to take a stand. And that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 to one of the most decadent, profligate societies in the church sitting right there as a small group right in the middle of it. Denominationalism is another influence. Denominationalism, a cultural influence. I talked to a friend of mine out in Colorado the other day, member of the church, and he said a phrase to me I'd never heard in the church, but I'd heard it in the denominations. It raked on me, and I said, what does that mean? And so we kind of went back and forth on the phone. I said, but I don't read that. What are you talking about? Well, I could hear it on Caleb. I could hear it all kind of play, but I don't read it. What kind of influence was that? Where was it coming from? 
I had another friend out at the base. He says, listen, denominations are a different flavor of Christianity. It means that's God reaching people where they are, Scott. What don't you get about this? Different flavors of Christianity to meet everybody where they are. I said, you have never read Deuteronomy chapter 12. He said, really, what's in that? I said, in verse 13 and 14, I beseech you, take heed to thyself that thou offerest not up thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place that Jehovah shall choose, in one of your tribes, there you shall offer up your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I command you. What was happening? He said, get up to the high places, knock down the altars of Baal, cut down the ashtroth, cut down the groves, clear the ground, take those poor little babies that you sacrificed out of the ground, wipe out the cemeteries, clean that thing off. And after that, they wanted to do what? Well, this is a great high place. Maybe we just stick God's altar right here. But God, we're going to do it according to your plan. We got a priesthood sanctified according to your laws. We're going to take an unblemished animal according to your statutes and we're going to sacrifice these things. God's saying, no, you will not. You will do it where I tell you to do it. You will meet me where I am. Man has never met God where man wanted to meet him. Ever. That's God's thoughts. Deuteronomy 12 and 32. What things soever I shall command you, that shall you purpose to do or observe to do. Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. That's it, finality. It's right there. No left, no right. There's the lane. Come ye out from among them, be ye separate, touch no unclean thing. Thank you.